Warning, this podcast contains foul language, sexual situations, and discussions of drugs and drinking. Yeah. Welcome Welcome to to Fuck Shakespeare. Shakespeare, a podcast for the Shakespeareanly challenged. And anyone who really enjoys some saucy dick jokes. Teachers, we might insult you a little bit, sorry. Okay, everybody, enjoy. Hi, welcome back to Fuck Shakespeare. I'm Diana. I'm Erin. Today, we're going to introduce you to our Our friend, Liz. Liz Liz is a teacher and beloved by her students. We are not going to share with you Liz's last name or the school at which she teaches because her students are too young to listen to this podcast. (laughs) So welcome, Liz. Hey. Hi. So glad to be here. So glad to have you. And we're also going to make a little tech disclaimer here at the top because we are recording in my office. So you might hear kittens. Who knows? And Liz is in her car on the way to Philadelphia. So that's (laughs) kind of fun. (laughs) So the tech is what it is. All right, people. Just a quick aside about the tech. While I'm editing this, I'm trying to take out any of the shushing sounds and make us sound a little less hollow and weird, but I am no audio engineer. They are miraculous miracle workers, and that's not me, so I'm sorry. No problem. Yeah, good. So we wanted to talk to you today, Liz, because we wanted to get a bit of the teacher's perspective. You know, we we have badmouthed teachers a couple of times here, and um, it's not that we think that teachers are awful, right? We, I've had some fantastic teachers. I've been a teacher myself and you are a fantastic teacher. So we wanted to know from your perspective about your experiences with Shakespeare and how you. I mean, I think the reason, the reason I'm even here is because after I listened to your first awesome episode, I think I wrote to you and said, wait, 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 wait. I'm a teacher and I don't do that. I don't, I'm not a foreign <laughs> teacher. I think that maybe is even why I'm here. Yeah, no, it is why you're here because the thing is we already know because aside, we have had the pleasure of working with Liz as actors as well. So we know that you're not someone who doesn't understand the prose and poetry of Shakespeare, the relevance of Shakespeare in the modern day. Like we already know that you are not the people that we're talking about. So (laughs) we did want to, oh, it's 1111, make a wish. (laughs) Okay. Um, Uh, Praying to Nigel Tufnell. Um, so that's why we wanted to have you here because because it, we have been kind of hard on teachers, but it, it isn't every teacher, just like it isn't every man or every whatever. You know, it's <laughs> it's the teachers that haven't learned themselves why Shakespeare's still in the curriculum. You know, and one of the reasons I'm so glad to be here is because I actually have colleagues, believe it or not, who say, "Oh well, I." I am just not going to teach Shakespeare because I really, no, I really can't. I can't do it justice. I don't know. I wouldn't know where to start. So I'm just not going to do it. And anyway, you do it so well, I could never do it as well. And I'm like, you know, are you kidding me? Come on. So that's, that's another thing. I hope that people can listen to this and get something out of it that will help them bring Shakespeare to life. Right. Yeah. And in fact, you know, the real, one of the reasons that I do bring a lively Shakespeare experience to the classroom is partly the way that I was taught myself. And partly the way that I've seen 
Diana and Aaron, yes, you two, working with kids um, over the years that we've known each other. So, you know, as you were taught, so you teach. In fact, can I just tell you how one of my first earliest experiences with Shakespeare? It was actually, I was going to school in England. I was in London. I was a very posh girl's school. It was very, very upper, upper. And, um, and when it came time to do Shakespeare, all of that went out the window and we moved the tables and chairs back and in our little pinafore uniforms proceeded to act out Midsummer Night's Dream. I was in, I think, probably sixth grade at the time. And I don't remember much about it, except I do remember that there was this one girl who was the, you know, the hilarious one that everyone kind of like the irreverent one that makes all the funny noises when the teacher's saying something. She was the one who was cast as bottom. <laughs> and she, <laughs> of course, you know, she totally brought it to life. She brought uh, somehow all of the wackiness of that role. and. It made us all crack up. And I realized, my, so my first experience with Shakespeare was hilarity. Yeah. It's just as should everyone's be. Yeah. And beautifully brought to life by a peer, which is really terrific, right? I love that. So it's not someone telling you what Shakespeare should be. It's the kids finding their way on their own. And how lovely is that? Exactly. And, you know, so I try to make that the same for my own students. I also, all through, I don't, I don't know if people still have to do this, but I had to memorize a lot of Shakespeare when I was growing up. Did you guys have to do that? I didn't. In high no. school? Well, no? I mean, okay, well, I did. Theater. I did. Right. Well. Yeah. <laughs> right, that was different, though. Yeah. That was, yeah. that was, that was, that was chosen right. memorization versus forced memorization. Yeah. yeah. But in Shakespeare's day, yes. students had to do that all the time, right? Most of, a lot of what they did in school was memorization. Yeah. And, um. I think that, you know, I always tell my kids, this is going to be the last stuff coming out of my mouth in that scary, you know, old folks home that they're going to stick me in someday <laughs> and I'll be ranting in iambic pentameter. <laughs> totally. First in, last out. <laughs> right. yeah. it, sticks in your, it sticks in your brain. You know, when I think about all the things I've memorized, the things that stick are the things with that rhythm. And I mean, you know, I, I know we've talked about this, about how, how iambic pentameter mimics the heartbeat and it's just become sort of systemic. <laughs> it's a memory. Yeah. It's a memorization that just infuses your whole being. I, I, it becomes like a muscle memory. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And um, I remember memorizing Shakespeare sometimes, you know, and I do it when I'm walking because it has that kind of ambling rhythm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah like one of those hard driving rock songs that you can you know do your workouts to <laughs> well precisely so i i did have to memorize and as part of the memorization of course you have to recite it in class and the one that really sticks with me um we used to read the merchant of venice most schools don't read that anymore because it's problematic although i think we should go there yeah. and we yeah. should examine how jews were depicted in renaissance europe and what they're playing i mean i think it ties in very closely with the history but anyway we had to memorize of course tomorrow tomorrow and tomorrow from yeah. the scottish play and i just remember so well how the way that that speech would build to that line you know it's a tale told by an idiot yeah. and we were supposed to not say the word idiot usually because that was you know not polite and yet here we could say it in, in class 
And um, I think there was something away that uh, the way that that speech builds to idiot and then the sound and the fury and then that signifying nothing at the end. Um, And I think I understood from that the way that it was crafted like, you know, this was the 70s, so I'm dating myself, but like, I was really into Led Zeppelin. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the way that some of those songs would like build to this like climax and, you know, and then like the end. Um, And um, yes, (laughs) yes. So that was one early memory. And so of course my students do memorize uh, passages of the play that we're working on and they do recite them. And um, I think throw yeah. that one out there as a favorite. So like hoping that one of your kids will pick it up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, usually it's from the play that we're doing, but sometimes we'll do a sonnet that, you know, that works too. I and then where, yeah. you, where you were talking about at the end of that speech where tale told by an idiot, it's, it's this incredible, it's almost a dialogue between the character and the writer, right? Yeah. It's like Shakespeare having this, you know, internal battle where he's like, what the fuck am I doing writing this? <laughs> like, oh my God. Yeah, I love it. It's like Macbeth yelling back at his creator. <laughs> oh, man, I never, wait, wait, I never thought of that. Yeah. So, so Willie's kind of calling himself an idiot too? Still told by an in a way because yeah. like, it's so it's multi-layered as it always is in Shakespeare, right? Always. It's, it's not only about man and his creator, but it's about the character and his, his creator. creator. Right, right? for sure. About that, yeah, dude. That's that's why I love this. Yeah, awesome. that's why I love this. In discovery every day. Yes, <laughs> exactly. What yeah. one other thing that I um I did a lot of Shakespeare in high school, and I was kind of a nerd, and I did this outside thing called Young Conservatory at ACT in San Francisco, where I grew up. And I will never. We had to do like line scanning, mm-hmm. and and so I have my students do that too. Because it's always, you know, I remember learning that's where the clues are to where there's an irregular scan, what's going on in that line that shit, because, you know, he meant to do that if it's irregular, right? Well, so wait, Um, I'm going to interrupt you for a second, Liz, because I think our our intended audience may not have ever been asked to scan a line before. And Diana and I have talked about iambic pentameter and irregularities in iambic pentameter, but we haven't really talked about stanchion. Right. So can you just fill in the blank for that? Uh, Because Diana and I know what you're talking about, but maybe some of the people who are listening don't know what to scan a line in Shakespeare means. Of course. Okay. So we all know that iambic pentameter is da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum. And I have my students learn how to do that on the page with like, you know, the little smiley curved line and then a slash for the unstressed and then the stressed syllables so we do that when we're especially when it's a line that we're going to say or speak we we scan it and sometimes you know spoiler alert i know that there's some irregular meter in there and we'll look for it to say shakespeare is smart enough to know how to put in a word that does scan with iambic pentameter so when he puts in a word, when he rearranges the words in the line so they don't quite fit that rhythm, he meant to do that. Right. And yeah. what is, you know, why did he choose to do that? What, is there something going on in the character's mind that is off? 
it's off. You know, we all have those moments when we feel off our game, off rhythm. And so there are these wonderful little subtle clues that Shakespeare throws in for the actor. And then, you know, it's sort of like the lighting in a restaurant. You don't notice it's there, but you notice when it's good and you notice when it's bad. You especially notice when it's bad. You notice when it's off. And I think that when when we play with the meter like that, when Shakespeare plays with the meter like that, it's that same effect. Yeah. Yeah. Like a, a fabulous example of something, a line that everyone's going to know, which is, uh, so first I wanted to say that stressed and unstressed means like a syllable that is not hit with the bub bum, right? So like to be or not to be, that is the, and then we have this word, question, right? Like, it's like, it's going along fine. And then suddenly you have this big word that doesn't fit, doesn't fit at all. So what does that tell us, right? That's the very top of that speech. What's that going to be? I knew you were going to say that line. What's that all about? I knew that was going to be But it's a great example. It's a line that everybody knows. And it makes it up and pay attention. Question. This whole thing is going to be a big fucking question. Okay, I want to talk about one more line. Yeah. That really got me when I was a teenager. And it was this when I was doing this young conservatory thing. And here's this line spoken by Queen Margaret in Henry the Sixth, part three. And she is just, she's her husband is this is a weak king, and he's basically like giving away, he's giving away the shop. He's letting himself be run over by more powerful people. And he says to her, oh, you know, I couldn't do it. They forced me. Mm-hmm. And she turns to him and she says, enforce thee? Art thou king and will be forced? And then she goes on basically to say, I hereby divorce myself from thy table, Henry, and from thy bed. Yeah. And I got to say those lines when I was a teenager and I thought they were just so badass. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, definitely. That, Right. And I didn't know, you know, we don't know kids, kids think Shakespeare is all, you know, this lofty thing. And they don't realize that it's about these moments like that. And these characters who bring the full force of their fury, their scorn, their love, their anxiety to us. Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, absolutely people like that now, right? Where, you know, the husband is very weak and the wife is completely fed up with that, right? We could picture a situation like that easily enough. And and Shakespeare wrote a lot of those. I mean, think, you know, Lady Mac, right? Yeah. Um, And, you know, we all watched the House of Cards a few years back and thought thought of that too. (laughs) There it is, you know, there it is all over again. So, you know, you can even watch The Sopranos and think about, wow, how, how would it be to have a mother like that? So, yeah, you um, know, and 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 we talk about how Shakespearean the show Succession is like. Oh, oh my god! God, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Speaking of the histories, well, that's yeah. so. Let me let me go to the next thing about this is really why I love teaching Shakespeare and what I think you have to do to have your students get it the way that you want them to get it, and that is you have to point out to them why it's relevant. They already. I usually say you know what? You already know the story. You already know this story because this story, whether it's Romeo and Juliet or one of the histories, which we don't usually do, you already know this story because it's pretty much every movie, 
every TV show, there's some kind of corollary yeah. Yeah. that you can find. It's a shame that we don't do the histories because, you know, we think, oh, that's just about, you know, a period in British history. But, oh, my God, it totally, totally coincides with ours. Talk about Julius Caesar. You, you've taught Julius Caesar, right? Like, was there, a, isn't there a great aha moment where kids look up and go, holy shit, that's totally relevant our right time. now. <laughs> well, right. And I always introduce it. And I always say, this is a cautionary tale about why it's probably not always a good idea to kill people that you disagree with politically. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but sometimes we really, really want to. <laughs> you do. But I want to say before I start teaching, so this is what I would tell a teacher who's timorous, to borrow a word from Queen Margaret, yes. of, um, a little a little shy of teaching Shakespeare because they think it's like you have to be so serious, mm. is, you know, play, just, it's, it's a play, play around, yes, stand right. up, just like my stodgy teacher did in my stodgy school in England, push back the tables and chairs, get the kids on their feet and act it out. Yeah. Also, I think one of the lovely things about it is if you're a teacher who is not, who feels like you're, you don't understand enough about Shakespeare to be able to adequately teach it. So learn with your students, right? Get up on your feet, read it aloud and discuss, well, what do we all as a group think that line means? What do we all as a group hear when we hear that word? What do we, because if you're, if you're an engaged teacher learning alongside of your students, what an awesome lesson that is yeah. about life. <laughs> yeah, right? absolutely. I love to do that with my kids. I like to say, you know what? I don't know. <laughs> Let's find out. Yeah. Let's yeah. find out. One thing I do, I will say before I actually start the active part of the, of the play learning, I do give them a little, you know, maybe like the first day before we actually start the play. We do, I do give them a little lesson in the language. I do teach them about iambic pentameter and the way that Shakespearean sentence structure is often freaks people out. And I just say, look, it's like Yoda, you know, right. <laughs> put, put the verb at the end of the sentence, you will. So they, you know, they, they get that. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> I love that. Yoda. Hey, we're going to steal your Yoda reference. Oh yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing that I, I want to teach them a little bit about, they always love the fact that there were no women allowed on the stage in Shakespeare's time. Yeah. And so I kind of let, let them figure it out about, so wait, you mean like the guys had to play, the men had to? Yeah. And then I tell them about when you get to, as what do we like have? It. like, And as you like it, right? <laughs> where you have, where you'd have like a man dressed as a woman who dresses as a man who then dresses as a woman. It's a, it's a, it's, it's lots of fun. Yeah. So right. they, they kind of like the whole idea that there was some gender bending and playing yeah. around with gender roles that about necessarily relevant. happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Talk about relevance. Like that is completely a great topic for bringing Shakespeare to the present day and how gender, how gender binaries were not in, you know, not important on his stage because they got bent all the time. Right. Right. Yeah. What, what 
Absolutely. Is, are the plays that you teach, Liz, typically assigned as part of the curriculum, or do you actually get to say, hey, I'd like to teach this rather than that? Um, we usually do Romeo and Juliet because it's difficult for ninth grade. And then I, I throw in Julius Caesar. Some people like to do, well, the Tempest is actually really interesting if you're studying colonialism, because I do teach history also. So if you're kind of studying European colonialism, The Tempest is a really, you know, it's a really great play to kind of support some of that and examine some of the attitudes about colonialism that are present, you know, under the surface in The Tempest. Yeah. Generally, I like to do tragedies because I think that those appeal in some way and people kind of get this wrong. They think, oh, teenagers like funny things, but actually I don't think that's true. I think teenagers... I think that the idea of tragedy appeals to teenagers because they're just kind of awakening to some of the like <laughs> shittier aspects of adult life. Yeah. That's part of being a teenager, right? Yeah. Isn't it? So those are the places that I usually do. So I have a question also on uh, to tag on to that. So when you teach a tragedy, how do I want to phrase this? In the Nyack school system, where my children went to school and some others of our children went to school. There were teachers who insisted that they knew thematically what the play was about. And that was it. So that was said at the top, like, I'm going to tell you what the theme of this play is. And then everything you talk about from that moment on about this play is going to have to be in terms of that theme. But one of the things that I love about Shakespeare is depending on your filter, the theme changes, right? And so uh, my oldest, no surprise there, got into fights with his teacher who, you know, was like, this is what Othello is about. And my kid went stomping off to Diana's and said, what, 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 that's not right. What, what do you, so when you first present whatever play you're, you're teaching them, how do you handle that issue? Like, is there a way that you can leave it open, more open-ended? Well, but yes, of course. And we do that with every work of literature that we teach. You never say to a kid, no, that's the wrong interpretation. You say, wow, I've never thought of that before. That's so cool and interesting. What a, you know, that's great insight. I've never thought of that. Why would you ever stomp on a kid who's trying to find their own way through something and find a way to connect to it? So yeah, I don't want to speak negatively about any teacher anywhere, but Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think so. That's one of the reasons that Diana and I are a little bit snotty about teachers who teach Shakespeare because they often do say this is the one interpretation of it. And if you answer differently, you're wrong. And and I think that's why we're we're mean about teachers sometimes, because that just squashes any kind of uh, imagining that the kid has on their own about, wow, what does that mean? You know, especially when it comes to the tragedies, right? Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. Like, oh, you know what? You know why I think that probably happens? I think that's because those teachers are approaching Shakespeare as a work of literature instead of as a living, breathing, performative work of art that is about your visceral and physical response to it, as well as your intellectual and you know analytical response to a work of literature you have to be on your feet i don't i don't i don't we're not reading shakespeare in my english classes we're doing shakespeare yeah. it's an active process 
So we're never, you know, and I've even, I used to say, okay, read, read act one, scene three at home, and then we'll come in and act it out. And then, you know, I've stopped doing that because A, they're probably not going to read it. And B, even if there's like two kids that do try to read it, they're not going to understand it. So let's just do it in the moment. So that's, that's what we do. We, we're in the moment. We push back the tables and chairs and we're standing up and everyone has a role. Even if they're an audience member, they have a role. Being a good audience member is also, they also serve who only stand and wait. Mm-hmm. So um, we're doing it. And first I assign roles in the moment and I, we just read it. You know, a kid reads a few lines and then I stop and say, okay, let's, let's talk about what that means. I don't try, I try not to use the word translate because translate is what you do from one language to another, but this is English and we speak English. I hate it when you say translating it. It's just English. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, So we, we talk about what it might mean. We might put it in modern English and then we talk about what, what it, so what it literally means and then what it actually mean means. Why did you say that? Right. And I, and I talk as a kid is speaking, I'll say, okay, Romeo, why did you say that? And, and I immediately put, try to make them go into that character's head. Yeah. 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 And when I was directing, I would always say, you know, like, what do you think, Margaret or whatever, you know, and they'd say, well, uh, uh, and they, they'd say something and then they'd say, well, that's just, that's just me. And I would be like, well, you are the only Margaret in this room. So therefore, what you say goes with the, with the idea that later on down the road, you might change your mind when you know more about her. Sure. But your opinion counts because you are embodying the character. Yes. And exactly. And there's nothing that we should be doing more than empowering our kids to use their own creative faculties. Yeah. So, and in literature, there aren't absolute right answers, right? That's, that's the realm of math. In math, there is one right answer, right? Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> but <laughs> but in literature, it shouldn't be that way. So you can't like just present an idea to the class and say, that's the only way to think about it. And you know what? Your right answer might even change the next time you read it. I, I know the entire play of Romeo and Juliet by heart, of course, as you do too, because you've heard it so many times. And so sometimes I'll change, you know, it's my attitude evolves toward these characters. And so I I love hearing new interpretations. I love it. That's one of the reasons that I I really enjoy doing this podcast with Diana because, right, so Romeo and Juliet, I've seen multiple times. I don't have it memorized. I never acted it. I never directed it. I've just seen multiple productions of it over many, many years. But like things that have come up while we've been dissecting it bit by bit, you know, I, I like the whole, you kiss by the book. Yeah. We came up with multiple reasons why Juliet might say that just yeah. in talking about it with each other. Yeah. I love that. It's yeah. like a treasure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, there is one moment when I do stop and do a little analysis, like on the page, on the book, and that is the Queen Mab speech. Because yeah. first of all, I love Mercutio so much. He is exactly like all the bad boyfriends that I love so much. He's a teenager. And that that speech, there's so much hinges on that. So much depends on a red wheelbarrow and the little fairy driving it. No, just mixing my (laughs) poems there. 
Um, so we do, we do look at that. We do some deep dive analysis. And then, you know, later when I give my students a choice of topics to write about, guess what? Guess how many of them choose to write about? Yes, the Queen Mab speech. Because yeah. we've taken the time to really study it. We talk about how dreams reveal those hidden desires that you can't really voice, even to yourself in your waking hours. And that really, um, that really catches my students' attention. And, you know, I think there's probably a lot of teachers who just say, oh, don't worry about this speech. We'll just flip. Sorry, you were, break. you were breaking up. Uh, can you still you're 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 making really great electronic okay. sound still right now <laughs> no okay. right now it's a little good. better right now it's better okay yeah. sorry we must have been going through a desert did you hear my thing about queen map speech yes and the funniest part of it was as you're talking about dreams your voice is going should i say it again yes okay so that is one moment that we really do we kind of dig in a little bit on the text. Um, we'll sit down and we'll analyze the queen map. Actually, what I do is I break it up into little chunks and then I'll give a group of um, maybe three students one of the chunks of the, of the speech. And um, we really get into how these dreams, you know, what are all these dreams that he's talking about? There are people dreaming about things that they could never admit to wanting. You know, these secret desires, you know, cutting foreign throats. That's not what soldiers are supposed to want. They're supposed to want to be fighting for the honor and glory of their country. You know, a, a, a tithe pig's tail, you know, the parson's doing his work because of his, you know, love of God, right? Well, maybe he's actually in it for the money. So they understand this. They understand what dreams can reveal. And I think probably a lot of people just kind of skip over the Queen Mab speech when they're teaching it, like, you know, it's just a lot of words on the page. But actually, my, a lot of my students at the end of the unit, when we're writing our essays on Romeo and Juliet, will actually choose to write about the Queen Mab speech and dreams because they get it. Yeah. I, th I always think it's so fascinating to see the size of each thought in that dream and to realize how much attention Mercutio gives to the soldier right? Because that is his nightmare. That's the, that's right. the dream that comes back to haunt him constantly, right? So that's, that's the realm that he thoroughly understands. Mm -hmm. Everyone else he's kind of surmising about or joking about, and it gets a little bit much, well, it gets a lot more intense once he hits the soldier. That's, some, that's a way in which my teaching has become better. And this, and this about this, teaching this play, I've gotten better at teaching this play as my scholarship has been deepened by actually by you diana you're the one that we were talking about mercutio and how he's seen by many as having ptsd from his work in the wars and you know he's like an older guy he's like in his 30s or something and he's hanging around with these teenagers so he's kind of also got this arrested development thing going so that helps kids to understand a little bit too if i can give them that background but I will hasten to add, you don't need to have that background to be an excellent teacher of Shakespeare. You know, you get it as you go. Yeah. You want to talk at all about your experiences as an actor acting Shakespeare? Were there any like great moments that really brought text to life for you there? 
well, yeah, but you know, there's so much more to, t- could, I want to say one more thing about teaching yeah, and okay. that is, here's another reason why you have to be on your feet and acting it out. The blocking so much of theater is nonverbal. It's not just about the text. And we all know that Shakespeare doesn't give stage directions much except the, you know, pursued by a bear part. (laughs) There aren't very many stage directions. So we are making that up as we go along. And that's a way in which kids can understand the power relationships, especially when we're doing Julius Caesar, the power dynamic centered on the stage, where we're putting people in the space can teach as much about the action of a scene, not as much, but it can add to their understanding so much more than just the words can. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if we think about in terms of Elizabethan um, body dynamics, physical dynamics, like how close you're allowed to be to another person in terms of their status. And so just, you know, going back to Romeo and Juliet, that whole thing about them actually touching flesh to flesh was a shocking thing because people didn't do that right oh yeah when we do that when we do the shared sonnet i have my you know teenagers are squirrely about touching each other so we do that too and i say you can just have like a little force field of space between your hands and that's actually kind of sexier than actually touching in a way right isn't it the potential of touching one other very important thing that we haven't mentioned here about teaching shakespeare is you have to point out the naughty bits. Yeah. <laughs> We're big fans. Right? Big fans. So the opening scene, this is why, as is actually why Romeo and Juliet, it's like a teacher's dream in a way. You know, the opening scene, you can have everyone on stage brawling, throwing things. You can put people in red and blue scarves or probably bandanas are not a great idea. You can explain to them this, the feud. And then even before that, you have you have all the servants with their cocky posturing, yeah. and you just point it all out. You know, maids to the wall and their maids' heads, and it's not something that you have to be shy about. And yeah. and in your in your school, are the administration okay with you pointing out all of the naughty bits? Well, maybe not all of the naughty bits, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you can. I think. Of course, teenagers are so attuned to this anyway that a little insinuation goes a long way. You right. don't necessarily have to spell it out. Right. All you have to sometimes say is, I'm not sure that he's actually talking about a fish. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, Diana and but, I aren't quite so subtle. No, we're not. I mean, so we're not working with children, we are, but like in this podcast, right. we're not. But you know. Quite so slam them over the head with it yeah yeah um, i was just thinking as you were talking about bandanas and you know scarves wouldn't it be great to kick off romeo and juliet by going down to the gym and getting the red and blue pennies or whatever you know color you have and creating a brawl in the gym if the teachers you know if the gym teacher lets you just have like so many crumpled up pieces of paper and just have like this crazy snowball fight <laughs> of wacky you know people running and you can only hit people with the other color there's an understanding of the Capulets and Montagues for you right there. Love it. You know, I, I actually have crumpled up pieces of paper resembling different colors of fruit in my closet in my schoolroom right now. <laughs> <laughs> for the brawl. For the yeah, brawl. I love that. Yeah. I love that. See, that's, that's so great. good because getting people up on their feet. Yeah. And physical. And physical. And 
and then and it's something they can laugh during and there's a release of pent up energy and all that so like all, you already have their attention i love yeah, that yeah and you know what i also it helps them understand a little bit of the history of the theater if you're trying to do that but it you know i always say look these were not necessarily even performed in a theater they could be performed in an inn yard and the, i explained the groundlings either these are the people who couldn't pay for the fancy high seats and so they were sitting on the ground and they were probably had their lunch and they were watching these traveling players. And if they didn't like something, they would just hurl a tomato. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, it's, it was in the actor's best interest to win over the groundlings with some raunchy humor right from the start before the highfalutin love scenes. So, yeah. Shakespeare is genius at interweaving those things. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. I think we talked about this in the very first episode, but I could be wrong about that. Uh, but about how in every tragedy, there's some of the funniest comedy. Yeah, and then there's some that we would rather do without. Right, like the clown in Othello. Yeah, you know. Who the heck is that guy? <laughs> Nobody ever sees him. <laughs> but also in plays like uh, All's Well That Ends Well, that's supposed to be a funny scene when they pretend to be natives and right and yeah. and, and and they're going to boil him in oil and it's horrifying there awful. is nothing funny about that it's absolutely awful that's right well actually you know you asked me earlier about how i liked acting shakespeare and i love acting shakespeare but um i will say for me i one of my hardest roles was playing Hermione in The Winter's Tale because you, the language, as we were saying before, how the language sort of takes over your body. Mm. And when I'm playing a tragedy, it really, it really gets me. And, you know, I don't know how actors do it. It, it makes you sad for the month or two that you're working on the play if you're playing a tragic role. And yeah, I think that's the power of Shakespeare uniquely has because of that language. Well, look how how deeply Heath Ledger was affected by the Joker, right? Yeah, yeah, it it yeah. really fucked him up there. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So you know, one, oh, another thing I do in my classroom is I have Shakespeare quote of the week on my wall, and um, of course in October I use the um, uh, quotes from the Scottish play, and I and I explain to them what the play is about a little bit, and I say I tell them why you can't say Macbeth, and I explain how a lot of actors believe that the play is actually cursed yeah. because of all of these horrible accidents that have befallen actors when they were playing this play. For example, the prop knife that turned out to be an actual dagger. Yeah. And I explained this to my students a few days ago. And then when that tragedy happened with Alec Baldwin and the yeah. gun, mm -hmm. one of my students ran up to me and he said, did you hear that? Maybe they were doing Macbeth. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I don't think so, but it's kind of the same thing where you think it's a prop, it's not. Anyway, I remember hearing um, an incredible, uh, I heard an incredible story about an opera singer who was in Tosca and the same thing had happened where there was a knife replacement and she's supposed to stab the villain at the end and she actually did and he's bleeding and singing. And since she was uh, in Italian, she instead changed the words to, oh, my God, are you okay? You know, like, <laughs> trying to find out if he was, and he's like, he's fine, he's fine. And they had to, like, cart him off, which they do anyway, yeah. as part of the action of the play. But he, he was carted off and then quickly carted to the ER. 
Yeah. My goodness. Well, um, so what about what, you know, we were talking before about how even in the comedies, there's some element of tragedy. It's like a little yin yang thing, right? There's always a little spot of black in the white part of the yin yang and vice versa. So when I was playing Helena in Midsummer Night's Dream, I think that there are moments, even in that goofy play and those goofy scenes between the lovers, when there are moments of real pathos, yeah. um, you know, and Lysander has them too. And I, so I think that, I think that that was one of my most memorable roles. Also playing Lady Capulet, she is usually just portrayed as this fucking bitch. But, um, you know, talk not to me for, yeah, I will none of it. You know, I've done with thee. Yeah. I mean, what a horrible thing to say to your child. I have done with thee. Oh my God. But then if you look a little deeper and I try to help my students see this too, she is in a position in which she has no power. Yeah. She has to do her husband's bidding and she's furious with her daughter for not basically kowtowing to the patriarchy yeah because yeah. she wishes she could do the same she yeah. was married off at a young age we learn you know and and so there's all of this depth that you can bring to a character who is essentially a horrible person or who appears that way at first glance so i think that's another reason that we need to keep teaching shakespeare is it it helps us to see characters as much more than these one-dimensional, even though they are often archetypes, mm -hmm. they're archetypes with depth. They're fleshed out archetypes. Yeah, I would even go so far as to say the stories are archetypal, but the characters themselves are human, flawed humans. Yeah. You know, so it's not, it's not like mythology, although those characters are also often flawed, but it's there are so many layers to Shakespearean characters, even the smallest character, right? Because Shakespeare chooses the words so purposefully, right? Why does this character say what they say at this moment, the way that they say it? It's hugely important. And it gives you a lot of insight into each of the characters' own layers and the, the role that they play in the play. I, I just love it so, oh, so <laughs> much. Oh, I miss it. I miss it. Playing, you know, acting Shakespeare was some of the most fun I have ever had. And yeah. I would love to do it again. You know, I, I, we just have been through a pandemic. We're just finishing the pandemic. Oh, and we're um, <laughs> a lot of people were depressed during the pandemic. And, you know, I went through some tough times also. And there was, for some reason, this one line kept resonating. It kept sort of rattling around in my brain. And it's that line from Hamlet when he says, I have of late, but know not why, lost all my mirth. Mm -hmm. And indeed, it goes so heavy, I won't go on. But that, for some reason, kept rattling around in my brain and then it drove me to look again at so then I was of course googling around to watch it on YouTube and then I remembered one of my favorite movies of all time which is about failed Shakespearean actors <laughs> with nail and I that's one I think that's one of the best screen versions ever of that monologue have you seen that no 
We saw it. You and I saw oh, it we at my did. apartment. But I was so tipsy that I fell asleep on the couch. And so I don't really, I remember like- Erin was there the too and she fell asleep. I remember now. It was yeah. the apartment. Yes. Okay. So anyway, you should watch that again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that goes on our to-do list. Yes. And in our show notes too. Yes. Not too much wine when you're watching that one. <laughs> one thing. <laughs> Pay attention. <laughs> Another, that's another technique actually that I have to help students see themselves in Shakespeare and see different ways of looking at Shakespeare is just to show them some clips, you know, show them some clips from recent movies. You can find amazing things. If they, if they see actors that they already know from like, you know, action heroes playing Shakespeare, I think also a lot of people think, oh, Shakespeare is just like this old white guy. If you show actors of color doing Shakespeare, if you show people doing wacky productions in different settings of Shakespeare, I think it helps to open out um, kids' imaginations. What was the what was the production that was in Brooklyn where it took place in a woman's prison? It was all yeah, that was Henry oh, was that amazing? Henry Four. Yeah, I didn't see it, but I heard amazing. Yeah. Oh, I saw that. It was that all was great. women prisoners acting. So the, the framework was that the, these women prisoners were acting out the play, but their dynamic as people in the prison also really fed into the story. And it was incredible. Mm. Yeah. It was Harriet Walter, yep. who most recently played um, the mother in Ted Lasso, if you saw that. Yeah. Right. So I have a quick question uh, because we're going to wind up, wind this up soon. So my question is, one of the things that Diana and I have been talking about is casting, <laughs> casting Romeo and Juliet with current day television and movie actors that high school and college people will know. Like, what's a good cast, dream cast with current actors for Romeo? Well, let them do that. They can do that. You know, actually, that's something I always do at the end of the Odyssey, which I also teach, but that's a good thing to do with Romeo and Juliet. You know, you ask them, that's going to be a final assignment. You say, hey, everyone, make a Google slideshow. You can even put in little film clips and you have to cast the play and then you have to justify your casting with some lines from the play and then an example of that actor playing a similar role in a, a work they've already done. Wow. I love that. Okay, so fun. guys, that's a great project right there yeah. that Liz just handed you on a silver platter. Can you yeah, imagine yeah. handing that in as your Shakespeare project? That's excellent. I love that. Who would you cast as Romeo and Juliet right now off the top of your head? No, no, no. You can't ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> How about Mercutio? Who would be your ideal Mercutio right now oh, for pop culture? Mercutio. No, see, this, the kids have to do that. They're the ones that are, they're the ones that are attuned to the pop culture things. Yeah. They have to imagine who their ideal bad boyfriend is. And then they cast it, right? I mean, I don't know. I got you. I got you. All right. So one other, can I, I'm going to tell you one other, one other really fun assignment that I give. Yeah. And that is after you have to remind me of what action scene that is, is but the whoa, whoa, whoa is me woeful day scene when they're all gathered around Juliet's quote unquote corpse when she's not really dead. I have them then do a journal entry. They choose one of the 
characters who is grieving over what they think is Juliet's dead body and then write a journal entry from that person's, that character's point of view. So often we get Lord Capulet wishing he had treated her differently. We get Lady Capulet wishing she had protected Juliet. We get the nurse wishing she hadn't thrown Juliet under the bus. Yeah. Um, we get Paris, not, not too many people choose Paris because he's kind of like, who cares? Um, we get the friar hoping that mm-hmm. his plot isn't discovered. So, um, yeah, that's a fun, that's another fun assignment you can give to kind of deepen kids. And, and it's creative and kids love it. So as we're wrapping up, we want to know, do you have a favorite play? <gasps> a favorite play? Oh, come on. How could I? Okay. Um, I do love the histories. And I do love Henry IV because I kind of love the transformation of Prince Hal from just this ne'er-do-well party boy to the monarch taking on the responsibilities. I do not love the way, speaking of throwing people under the bus, I do not love the way that he throws Falstaff under the bus, but I understand why he has to do it. I mean, that line, I know thee not, old man, is just... That's a dagger to Falstaff's heart. Right? Right. Yep. right. Can you imagine as a parent hearing that, right? Because Falstaff is right. fully a father pretty, figure. Right. Pretty much. Father. Pretty much. Right. So fuck off, dad. Get Ugh, the fuck out of my life. I don't life. know you. I don't know you. Leave me alone. Wow. <laughs> rough. Yeah, rough. Seriously rough. Um, and going forward in the world, do you have any hopes for how Shakespeare will be treated in the curriculum? Because, you know, there is this awful possibility trend that people are putting forth that like, why do we need Shakespeare in the curriculum anymore? Just fuck it, you know, take it out. How do you feel about that? Um, fuck them. Don't take it out. <laughs> no way. Are you kidding me? No, we have to keep teaching. And that's one reason that I keep trying to help my students see how it's relevant because they're going to grow up to be the generation that decides whether it keeps getting taught or not. Yep. Yeah. So if we fail, screw our courage to the sticking place and we'll not fail. Yes. yes. Go lady. <laughs> Go lady. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Awesome. So this was a delight. Thank you so much, Liz. And Chris for driving. Yeah. All right, we have to go. Okay, we love you. Love you guys. Okay, bye. Thank you. Thank you much. For additional fun shit from Fuck Shakespeare, you can head to our website at fckshakespeare.com. Or find us on Instagram at fckshakespeare. If you are enjoying this podcast, you could support us for as little as 99 cents per month. Just click the support button on the page on Spotify or Anchor. Tell your friends.